God, our Father, we thank you that Christmas is coming. That Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, has come into the world to save sinners. And that we who are your people, Father, I can call out to you and receive forgiveness and life and a relationship with God that is moment by moment friendship with you by your Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you for that tremendous privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, I think my mic's pretty hot. Uh, well, this morning we're going to open God's Word together again, and we'll be looking at another passage um, that tells us about the why of Christmas. You know, we, we celebrate the fact a lot of times that Jesus came, uh, and the fact that God sent His Son into the world, be born uh, the child of Mary. Uh, but we also want to understand why. What was God doing in sending His Son uh, to be born in that stable, as the song says, in a bleak midwinter a long time ago? Uh, so we want to look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Uh, and those verses speak to us about how Christ came to, to move us from being slaves to being God's own sons. Uh, and so if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn over there to Galatians chapter 4, and uh, we want to read these verses together. If you don't have a Bible this morning, that is no problem, because we have a bunch of Bibles on that back table. And if you stick your hand up if you need one, uh, well, I'll have Gene there bring you one. And, uh, and we'll just, you can have that as our gift to you, okay? Uh, but you need a Bible if you don't have one. Um, be sure to grab one and take one home with you. Uh, but in Galatians chapter 4, this is what verses 1 to 7 say. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know, I wonder how many of us have actually considered and actually really understand what it means to be a slave. To actually be owned. Imagine that. To actually be owned by another person. Uh, I recently read an article that reported uh, the experience of one former African-American slave, a woman named Malvina King. And she, like a lot of survivors of horrible trauma, did not talk a lot about her experience. 
But one particular day, her, her grandson George, uh, who was a composer, uh, told her, you know, she asked, Grandma, tell me what it was like. And she finally opened up just a little bit. And she said, you know, I, I had two husbands. One was your grandfather, but I was married before that, and I lost him when he was sold to another plantation. And he said, well, Grandma, what was it like to be a slave? And she said, well, I'll just tell you this. They did everything except eat us. And that was all she would say. They did everything except eat us. Her life was completely controlled by someone else. And to be a slave is to be in that position, to have every aspect of your existence, including its continuance, be subject to someone else's decision, and that person is not obligated to be kind to you. And the Scripture here says that in, in verses 1 to 3 in, in, in this passage, that once upon a time, we all were like slaves too. That we had our existence and our lives dictated to us. Now, not in a physical sense, but spiritually. Uh, though we were, in fact, chosen by God's grace to be Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise, as chapter 3, verse 29 tells us, before we put our faith in Jesus, our status was like that of a slave. And Paul draws this out by referring to ancient Roman culture. He explains what, it was, what we were like before we met Jesus. And he says that it, in ancient Roman culture, before a son could obtain his inheritance, he had to, affirm, he had to first attain the age that his father had specified for that to happen. And so usually that was around 14, and then he was regarded, there was a ceremony that the son would go through, and he would be officially recognized as the child of his father and officially obtain his inheritance and receive all the things that belonged to him. But before that, he was under the authority of a guardian. And that guardian told him everything to do when to get up and when to go to bed what to wear and what not to wear where to go to school and a lot of times took him to school and made him go and and managed his 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 uh, his whole school experience what he could participate in what he couldn't participate in that child who was under that guardian was controlled in a sense by that guardian and the child is in some ways no different from a slave in ancient roman culture and then you know there was also a later time when you would actually become regarded as a functioning adult and in roman culture that was about 25 that you 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 had a another person a manager a, a trustee a steward depending on how your Bible translates the word there, who would 
uh, manage everything for you until you were mature enough to handle it. Now, some of us probably weren't mature enough at 25, but nevertheless, um, in, in Roman culture, 25 was kind of regarded as the age when you were mature enough to handle all the responsibilities of your estate. And so though it became yours at 14, you didn't get to enjoy it until you were 25 in all of its fullness. And Paul is comparing what we were before Christ to that situation. Though you were destined to be heirs of God our Father, you had not yet obtained your inheritance. Instead, you were enslaved to what he calls here in verse 3, look at your, your text here, the elementary principles of the world. Now, that little phrase, the elementary principles of the world, might require a little explanation. Um, outside of the Bible, that phrase uh, refers either to the what were regarded as the elements, and you know, what we, you know, things on the periodic table, right? The elements of the world, and in in ancient Greek culture, there were four of them. There were you know, it sounds like a band name, earth, wind, water, fire, you know, right? Um, right? Um, th- those are the elements of the world, okay? Or they also would use that, print, that, that idea, the elementary principles of the world, to refer to spiritual realities, the, the, uh, the gods and goddesses that they believed controlled the, the elements of the world, right? Uh, that, so you had a god over the water, remember his name? You know, Poseidon, right? He was the god of the sea, and he controlled uh, the oceans, supposedly, right? And then you had the god of the sky, and that was Zeus, right? And he could st- throw down thunderbolts and all that. He controlled the, the air. And then, and then you had uh, the earth goddess. Remember her name? I think it was Gaia, something like that. Um, and, uh, and she was the one who, uh, you know, was the earth goddess. And then you had Ceres that was the goddess of the grain that would cause the grain to grow on the earth and all these things, right? And, and the Galatian church is made up of people largely out of that background, out of a pagan background that worshipped all these various gods and goddesses. And the idea was, well, if you just keep these gods and goddesses happy, well, then they will bless your life, Right? And Paul is saying that when, if you are a pagan, that you were enslaved to that. Because guess what? You could never know, if you were a pagan, whether or not the gods and goddesses were actually happy. Right? So you're always kind of looking over your shoulder. Well, you know... You know so, so if somebody got sick, well, it's like, well, I guess they didn't offer the right sacrifice. Somebody died, oh, well, Zeus is mad at him. You know, I mean, but you didn't know in advance what, uh, what was required to be in the good side of these gods, right? And it's a form of slavery. But within the Galatian church, there's also, uh, there's also some Jews that are there. And look at what Paul says. He says, in the same way, we... When we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And what, when he says we, that includes him. 
And since Paul is a Jew, I think, I think we also need to look a little broader to understand what the elementary principles he has in mind are. If you read the rest of Galatians, what you understand is that Paul, as a Jew, understands that both religious Jews, people who keep the law like he did prior to meeting Jesus, and these pagan Gentiles are both separated from God because they're both trying to earn God's favor in a worldly way. Based on the principle that you earn your salvation. All religions of the world, except Christianity, biblical Christianity, operate by the same principle. All operate the same way. Uh, it's very simple. And I've, I've shared this before, but it's worth repeating, that all religions, all false belief systems, all of the elementary principles of the world, if you will, boil down to this. You need to do something in order to be on the right side of the God or gods or whatever that exist, right? And so if, as an example, uh, you are uh, a Muslim, you need to keep to the five pillars. You need to go on your pilgrimage. You need to pray five times a day facing east toward Mecca. You need to, uh, you need to uh, make 2.5% of your total assets in a donation as a gift to, uh, to people. You need to, report, to repeat the Shahada. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, right? You need to do these things. And you need to keep all of these. And if you do these over the course of your life, maybe, perhaps, when you get to heaven, Allah will let you in if you do this stuff, right? If you're a Roman Catholic, you know, and if you're a Roman Catholic background, you know that this is true, that you keep the seven sacraments, right? From the womb to the tomb, uh, you do these things, right? So when you are born, you get baptized as a baby and then you get confirmed and then eventually you take your first communion after that and then you've got to make a choice whether you're going to get um get married or you're going to become a priest or a nun right take your holy orders or get married uh you need to go to confession regularly and you need to be sure you have last rites right and if you do all these things well then perhaps you will at least go to purgatory and then to heaven, or maybe if you're a really good Catholic, you go to heaven directly, right? If you're a Buddhist, there's the Noble Eightfold Path. If you're a Hindu, you know, you need to stay on the right side of karma, right? So that you can attain nirvana where you achieve union with the divine, your spirit melds into the universe, and you you know, come back as a raindrop or something. I don't know. But, but in any case, right, you, you end the cycle of rebirth and you meld with the universe and you are at one with the divine being that pervades all existence, right? That's, but all these things are a list of do's, things that you need to do, right? That's the way all religions work, basically. And so Gentiles are trying to earn salvation by appeasing their various idolatrous gods, right? Go down and bow down to Zeus and offer a pig on his altar, you know. Uh, go down and bow down to Ceres and uh, bring some grain with you to make her happy, you know. 
Uh, but Jews are trying to do the same thing with the real God, but they're trying to earn His favor by keeping the law. You know, well, if you keep the Sabbath, and if you offer the right sacrifices at the temple, and if you uh, confess your sins to the priest, and if you do all these things perfectly, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, and if you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, then you will obtain a relationship with God. But even the very most religious Jews, though they had the law of God, could not keep it. Not even Paul. And he was a very pious Jew. And both Jews and Gentiles, the Scripture says, were enslaved to the principles that they followed. And if you track back through your life prior to meeting Jesus, you'll understand that so were you and I. Because if we are honest with ourselves and about all of our failures, what we did was we lived under the fear that when we got to the end of our lives, our efforts would not be good enough. Amen? And that we would not know what would happen to us. In fact, if you ask most non-Christians today, what do you think happens to us when we die? They go, well, I don't know, but I hope I go to heaven. Right? You hope? What that tells me is, is that not only do you not know for sure, but you're not sure you're going to make it. You have a fear in the back of your mind about what will happen to you. And we, before we met Christ, could have no confidence where we would spend eternity. And that, brothers and sisters, is not freedom. Amen? That is slavery to the principle that one way or another, one way or another, you've got to earn your way into salvation and into a relationship with God. We were slaves. But look at verse 4 and 5. But God has made us sons through Christ. By the way, don't stumble over that word sons, okay? The reason sons is used is because in the ancient world, sons are who inherited what belonged to the father, okay? Um, so what Paul is saying is, is that man or woman... You're all counted as sons. You're all counted as people who inherit what God owns. All the things that belong to God belong to you because you have the rights and status of sons. Okay? So in other words, just like men and women are included in the bride of Christ. Okay? Guys, don't get weirded out by that. All right? Um, ladies, you are sons of God the Father. Okay? You have a status as full heirs of God the Father. And Christ came in history, according to verse 4 and 5, to enter into our experience of life in this world and to bring us out of childhood, as it were, out of a status was like slaves to make us full heirs of God the Father. How did He do that? Well, Look at your Bible again. Verse 4. When the fullness of time had come. 
I think that's a reference to a couple of things. Uh, I think, first of all, it's a reference to the fact that God had planned the precise moment when Jesus would come into the world. And Jesus came into the world at a time when it was possible to spread the good news more easily and more quickly than at any time previous to that in world history. Uh, the Pax Romana had gone all over the known world. Uh, and the roads that the Romans built, many of them are still in use, still around today. Tell that to whoever does the road construction around here, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, but 2,000 years later, those Roman roads are still around. And those Roman roads all interconnected all over the Roman Empire, all across North Africa, through the Middle East, all across Europe, there were Roman roads. And those Roman roads enabled things to people to travel quickly and the gospel to travel rapidly and and so Jesus came at the precise moment when it was easy easier than any time prior to that in world history for the good news about Jesus to spread but it was also and much more importantly the precise time predicted by the Old Testament prophets when the Messiah would come you look carefully at the prophet Daniel, what you understand is that the very day that Jesus was crucified was predicted by Daniel uh, several hundred years prior to Jesus' birth. Several hundred years prior to Jesus' birth. Uh, over 600 years, almost 700 years prior to Jesus' birth, Daniel predicted the day that Jesus would be crucified. How about that? And so when he says, when the fullness of time came, in other words, at precisely the best time prior to that in world history, there had been nothing like this. Where the world was at peace, and the road system enabled the gospel to go out. But also at the very time the prophets had predicted, God sent His Son, who had been announced from ages past. And God sent Him to be born of a woman. So that without ceasing to be God, the eternal Son of God would be born a fully human person like us. To fulfill the promise that God made to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And Jesus on top of that was born under the law as the scripture says here. Meaning that he was born just like we were under the obligation to keep and obey all of God's commandments or face his judgment. That Jesus had to do and had to be just exactly like us. And verse 5 tells us why God did all these things. There were two reasons. Number one was to redeem those who were under the law. That was number one. Number two is so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let me explain that a little more. The word for redemption here is the, a word related to the ancient slave market. I, 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 
this is literally unfathomable to most of us, but there used to be a section of the local marketplace in every city. This even was the case in Europe and in America until relatively recent history where you would have, you'd go down to the market and they would have stalls and they would have hogs, cattle, sheep, chickens, slaves. And people were literally sold like livestock, if you can imagine that. And the word redemption is that means to pay the full price in order for a slave to be set free by his owner. And when it says that Jesus came to redeem, what it means is that Jesus, when he came, paid the full price for us. That he paid all of sin's penalty. He paid all that the law demands for us to do in order to be in right relationship with God. And He paid the penalty that we deserve for our disobedience to what God has called us to do. He paid it all, as the hymn says, right? Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. He paid every bit of what was required to set you and I free. Jesus obeyed God perfectly on our behalf, and He died the death that we deserved in our place for what we had done to disobey God. And those actions paid the price on our heads. And we have been, in, as a result of that, set free. And we are not on death row anymore for anything we have done or anything we ever will do. We are redeemed. We are set free. And more than that, look at this. Look at your Bible. To make us His sons to receive adoption as sons and again this is a reference to an ancient legal custom that a man could take a slave and adopt that slave as his son and what Paul is telling us is that that is exactly what God has done for us and he has taken us who were slaves. He has sent Jesus to pay the full price for our redemption from that status. And he has brought us into his house and made us his sons. And, and making us his sons, full adoption means that we get everything that belongs to the one who is our father. Everything that belongs to him now also belongs to us. You get the same status as heirs before God as if you naturally had been born to Him originally. You are a child of God. You have been brought from the slave market into sonship in the very family of God, the God of creation has loved you, sent His Son to die for you, that He might bring you into His family as His child. 
Imagine that. You need to see both sides of this, both sides of verse 5, both redemption as well as sonship. These are both important. I want to read you something from Tim Keller writing about this passage. He says, It's very easy and common to think of our salvation only in terms of the first and not the second. That is, only as the transfer from us of our sins. Which, hallelujah, my sins have been taken away from me. Amen? But not as the transfer to us of the Son's rights and privileges. When we think like that, we're really only half saved by grace. We get pardon, but now you have to live a good life to earn and maintain God's favor and rewards. In other words, I set you free, but you've got to work now, right? Listen to Keller some more. Paul wants to show the Galatians and us that not only did Christ remove the curse we deserved, He also gives us the blessing that He deserved. God's honor and reward are just as secure as our pardon. Hear that. Hear that again. God's honor and reward are just as secure as our pardon. In other words, the expectation that when you get to heaven as a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are going to receive a rich welcome into the kingdom of God's dear Son is just as secure as the forgiveness you have from your sin to start with. You get both. You get both. Not just pardon and forgiveness, but also honor and reward. The honor that belongs naturally to the Son of God also belongs to you because you have been adopted as a child of God. And I think a lot of us live our life kind of this way. We kind of... We, we are appreciative and we thank God uh, for forgiving us of our sins and we're grateful for that. But then we live our life kind of trying our best to make sure that God is still happy with us. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that we already possess status as heirs and children of God. The honor is ours too from the moment we believe in Christ. It's not just, in other words, that we have escaped from death row. That we have been pardoned. And now we need to work things out for ourselves, you know? I mean, if you're a criminal and the governor calls, we're commuting your sentence, you get out, right? That's a pretty good day if you're on death row. And you walk out as a free man, that'd be an amazing thing. But you still got to live your life on your own, right? You've been set free, but now you've got to work it out. That's not what God did for us. It's that we have been, imagine this. Imagine you have been taken from death row instead. They picked you up from prison and drove you to the White House. And there... The president hung around your neck the presidential medal of freedom. 
highest civilian honor that they have to bestow. It is that we went from being slaves, in other words, being condemned to judgment, to being regarded in God's eyes as if we were great heroes who had done great things. That's what being adopted as God's sons means. That we receive the same honor and glory in the presence of God as if we were Jesus himself. How about that? We have received both pardon and status as God's sons. And God sent the Son to redeem us and make us His sons. That's one great blessing. It's one thing to celebrate at Christmas. But there's more. Look at verse 6 and 7. He sent the Spirit so that we can experience our sonship. Not just that we have it as a status but that we can enjoy it as an experience right now. Verse 6 and 7 here. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Uh, because you are sons, God sent also the Spirit into your heart so that you cry out Abba Father the word Abba there is, a, is an Aramaic word for Papa or Dad it's a family word it's a word that you would only use in a household context in the context of family relationships you know if you're introducing your own father to a group of people you say this is my father, so-and-so, right? And you use a term of honor. But in the house, it's different. You talk to him and you say, Dad. Or when my dad calls, I say, Hey, Pop, how are you? Right? It's that kind of a word. It's a familiar word. It's a relationship word. And we get to use that with the God of the universe. Because He has sent His Spirit into us. And it is, a, it is a startling word in many ways. You know the word for Father only appears in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about twice or three times longer than the New Testament. The word for Father as applied to God only shows up 14 times in the entire Old Testament. It shows up hundreds of times just in the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Talking about God as our dad, as our papa, as our father. And it is the and Jesus used it when he prayed and and he told us to pray using that name. And the reason that we can is because God sent the Spirit to us so that we can experience the same kind of relationship with God that Jesus enjoyed while He was present here on earth. And that includes the right to address all the God who made all of creation as Papa, 
as dad, as father. It turns out that God is not scandalized to be referred to in very familiar relational terms if He has sent His Spirit to dwell within us. And He has. In fact, He welcomes it. Let me explain these verses a little more. The word translated crying here is a strong word. It's a word for passionate, profound feeling. It's the way that you might have called out to your father when you were hurt or scared when you were a kid. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago, I think it was, about a nightmare I had as a little boy was sick with a fever and these giant pink eyeballs with fangs were coming out of the wall, you know, coming at me. And the thing I did was cry out, Dad! Right? Uh, because I was in need and I was scared. And I knew my dad was going to respond. My dad was going to respond and come rescue me from these things. Right? And we have the right to do that. This is a word that is about when it says crying out. It is a word about our prayer life. I read Pastor H.B. Charles uh, online this week. He was on Twitter. Uh, He's one of the guys I follow, and he's actually someone who will edify your life. All right. But this is what he said. He said, prayer is the most objective measurement of our dependence upon God. The things that you pray about are the things that you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things that you trust that you can handle on your own. The things you pray about are the things you have to trust God to handle. But the things that you don't pray about are the things that you think you got. Stand back, God. I got this one. Right? <laughs> right? The things you don't pray about, that's what you're saying essentially to the Lord is, I got this. You can stand back. I, I, I can handle it. Right? When we cry, Abba, Father, we cry out because we depend on the Lord and we are seeking Him knowing that whatever situation we're in, we can't handle it on our own. And let me say this. You know how a a little kid cries out to their mom or dad immediately when they hit a problem? I mean, immediately. You have a little kid, you know this, right? You know, they fall off the swing set. What's the first thing they do? Mom! Right? You know, your kid can't quite figure out how how to ride their bike or whatever. You know, they come in, Dad, can you help me? Right? The idea here is that just like little kids, we ought to be coming to our father, our dad, with every area of life. And we ought to do so immediately and assuming that help is not only available, but is actually going to solve our problem. That God not only can, but that he will as we cry out to him. 
And God has given us the Spirit so that we can experience that kind of beautiful relationship like a little kid with a good dad. Who's immediately available, immediately helpful, and loves us no matter what mess we get into. We can experience what it means to be a son. Verse 7, it kind of summarizes everything that's in the previous six verses. But it's more than that. I think a lot of us miss out on the deep joy of sonship because we still respond to God as if we are slaves. We react to Him as if we have reason to be afraid. But we don't. Verse 7 is reminding us again, we're not slaves. We're sons. We're heirs through God. Our pardon has come through. Our sin is forgiven. And we are God's sons. And we need not fear God's judgment. Because we are forgiven and adopted into God's own family. And He has given us His Spirit that we can actually experience what it means to be a child of God. A few things here just to ponder as we close. Number one, are you a slave or are you a son? Are you a slave or are you a son? Do you in fact know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Many of us kind of assume that we do. But in fact, have you ever personally put your trust in Jesus Christ and experienced the freedom that comes from that? That comes from knowing that you have received pardon for sin and membership in God's family. You live in fear of God's judgment because you don't know Him as your Father. If so, today is the day to change all of that. Today, the Scripture says, is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear His voice, do not turn away. Today is that day. And you can change your relationship with God in an instant and move from redemption to slavery. I mean, from slavery to redemption. Got that backwards. Really important not to get that backwards. You can move from slavery to redemption. You can move from a point of living in works-based salvation. I'm going to try and just do the, be the best person I can be, however I understand God to work, to knowing you're forgiven and redeemed and adopted into God's family. But in order to do that, you have to put your trust in Jesus Christ. You must believe that He is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for your sins in your place, taking the penalty for what you did, for what you have done 
the things that you will do that are forms of rebellion against God. And that he was raised from the dead to give you new life and a home in heaven, an adoption as his son, and the Spirit of God to change your life from the inside out. If you believe that, Scripture says, as by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It's a gift of God. Simply receive that as a gift and experience a change in status from a slave to a son, from unforgiven to paid in full, from outside family of God to full heir right alongside Jesus himself. If you know Jesus, though, let me ask us some questions. When are you most tempted to live as a slave instead of as a son? Sometimes those of us who know better start trying to live and rely on our accomplishments and thinking that those are what matters in our relationship with God. So instead of relying on grace, we start thinking about how we better get busy pleasing God. But God is already pleased. Amen? God is already pleased. And we draw near to Him and we obey Him, not out of obligation, but out of love and gratitude. We don't obey God because we must. We obey God because we get to. Because we are in relationship with the God who loves us. Last thing, is adoption as God's Son something you experience as well as understand? You know, one of the problems sometimes with Bible church people, and I'm going to count myself in this here, is that we think that, that understanding something is true and experiencing it as true in my life is the same thing. Right? And so you hear people say sometimes, well, I know that. And then I want to say, do you really? Right? Because sometimes we believe and we, underst- and we, and we understand better than we live. But this is something to experience. To know the joy of having God as your Abba Father. Not just to be something that you long for, but something that you know. Something you've experienced. Something you have felt. If that is you, if you're a person who's like, you know, I I long for that, but I don't really experience that. Can I encourage you to meditate this week on, on two things. Number one, what the Son has done for you. There's no better time in the year to think about what the Son has done for you to make you a child of God. And then as you do that, ask the Holy Spirit then to work in your affections. 
to, 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 to work in terms of your emotions, your affections, your feelings, and say, Lord, I want to know the joy of being loved by you. Knowing you as my father, as my dad. Father, will you help me to experience that? And I, I happen to know that that is a prayer that God answers. But it's there for us, for all of us, to experience. Not just to, not just to know that Jesus died for my sins and paid the penalty and made me a son of God, but He sent the Spirit so that I could experience my sonship as a child of God, not just in eternity, but now. Now. Know the joy of knowing God as my Father. So, let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, this is a magnificent text that just unfolds all that You were doing for us in sending Jesus Christ to be born of Mary in a manger, to be born with a fully human nature and yet remain fully gone, to live a human life just like us, to experience all of the pain and suffering and difficulty and tragedy of this life, everything from betrayal to torture, rejection, death, all of it. He lived just like we do, and his life ended worse and many of ours ever will. He experienced all of that, Father, that He might take on the full penalty for all of our sin. That You might redeem us through His death. And that You then raised Him from the dead that we might experience the full joy of new life just like He did. And might spend eternity with You celebrating and enjoying what you have done. Father, let it not begin in eternity. Let us experience that joy now. It is for that reason you've sent the Spirit. Help us, Father, to experience the joy of sonship right now. That we might not miss out on the chief blessing that you have given to us of knowing you as Father. And Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to close with another case.